0: Hey everybody, welcome to this week's Q&A's. I have to record these a lot earlier than normal because I got a bunch of stuff going on and I don't want to rush into these. I always really enjoy doing them and I don't want to be staring at my clock going, oh, I only got five more minutes. Let me rush through. I like to take my time. I like to answer these questions as laid back and chill as possible. So if you missed a question or if I missed your question this week, please just re-ask next week. As always, if you have a question, just ask wherever it is that you support in the latest Q&A post because I can't really figure out what a new question on an older post? Plus, as you're about to see, I'd love just kind of hanging out, scrolling through the questions and having like a, what's supposed to feel like a conversation. So any questions at all, fire away wherever it is that you support. And if I missed your question this week, I'm sorry, either DM me through those services or just ask again for next week. But let's jump in and see what we got. First up, Fred Rummig wants to know if I could recommend a standalone HDMI capture device that doesn't need a computer. They're looking to capture Windows XP and Windows 98 games and setup. So it's going to deal with aspect ratio changes, resolution changes, and maybe even refresh rate changes. So it really depends on your budget and it depends on your end goal. And I'm not even sure if this is going to work without a PC because of how weird those signals can be. But on the higher end of things, you can get the Atomos. Uh, those are just like standalone boxes that can capture. I think they have an LCD built in, or you can get the ones where it's separate. But uh, it's it's like Atmos, but Atomos. Um, I'll try to leave a link to one of those. I know Carsey uses one. John Lenneman uses it, or at least they have over the years. And they're good, but I'm not sure how they would deal with those uh, different changes. And I believe it's like a grand for those. Now, on the flip side of things, I'm pretty sure there were AverMedia and um, the other brand that always drives me crazy, Elgato. <laughs> I'm pretty sure there were some of those boxes that also do exactly that, but same thing. How is it going to handle all of those different refresh rates, resolutions? And Elgato is pretty notorious for not handling those. Um, I mean, I think the newest ones do a decent enough job. So, and of course, if you're outputting um, VGA, you would have to then go from VGA to HDMI, either just through an ADC, an analog to digital converter, or uh, an OSSC a retro tank, some kind of scaler. The retro PCs are probably best with the OSSC or OSSC decks, so you're going to have to kind of keep all of that into account because you could probably get one of those cheaper, you know, consumer brand ones and the OSSC decks for less than the Atomos. And it should be able to work with everything. You could use the decks to buffer the signal, scale it to however you want, and output HDMI. So it's not an easy answer at all. If you were like, hey, you know, I have a Nintendo Switch, and I want to make sure I can take captures wherever my setup is, then that's easy grab one of the consumer-grade ones, and you're done. But Or on the flip side, if you're like, I want to take comparison-level capture so I could dig deep into pixel analysis, grab the Atomos. But for retro PC, that's where stuff gets weird. What I would really do is search through EposVox's YouTube channel to see reviews of those standalone boxes, and then see if you could either find one very cheap used or buy it from a place that will allow you to return it if it doesn't work with your setup and go from there. But I wish I had an easier answer, Fred, but that's just not an easy problem to solve. So, you know, if you have any other questions or I could point you in any other direction, let me know. But this might be one of those things where you have to throw a bunch of stuff on a wall and see what sticks. So hopefully I could point you in the right direction, but I would definitely start with Fox's channel. Next up, Dustin wanted to follow up on a couple of things from last week's conversation. First, they're sadly not in the market for a D32 unless they themselves hit the big one. But they were also wondering if... Higher resolution CRT displays like BVMs perform better for light gun games as far as accuracy. And no, because of how light guns work. So when you pull the trigger, if if you watch any footage that's on YouTube of slow motion when light guns are, are in use, you can see that a square appears on the screen where the character is that you're trying to shoot at. And as long as the beam of light draws that square properly, then that's it. That's all you need. So, that's not one of those things where it would be uh, accuracy would matter. Now, theoretically, if they made really, really small enemies, then yes, but then the game would be near impossible to play on consumer TVs and it would have been recalled from the shelves back in the 80s and 90s. So, while theoretically, maybe yes in practice no not at all because they have to work on all displays not just super high end ones but fair question is that you know would have been neat if you bought a a calibrated bvm and you could have a more accurate light gun experience but that's just not the way it works also as far as the idea of some sort of living museum social club they were kind of in the same mindset make an actual retro focused social club that has a membership Call it something like the all-retro Legion Lodge and go all out with a full bar and restaurant, live music, comedy, game tournaments, allow for board game nights, arcade stuff. Um, yeah, you know, I like all those things, but it really just comes down to money. And when it, when you have something like a golf club or a yacht club or, or any of that stuff, that's pretty mainstream. So, And it's also part of culture. So if you're an executive who wears a collared shirt every day and you know you, you show up at work and uh, you know everybody's going golfing or they're going to the tennis club or something it's it's part of that like keeping up with the joneses oh I should I should definitely do that too whereas things that are on the fringe that means you really have to love it to go do it. You know, if you're a lot of people aren't going to get excited to go play old video games until they give it a try themselves and I'm sure many people open up, but it's still not something that's super mainstream. So, people would really have to love it and they'd have to be willing to drop a lot of money to keep that going or you'd have to have a couple of huge investors that would be would be willing to carry it for 10 years until word gets out and people start to realize there is no difference between this, and another hobby. And in fact, while this is nothing to do with your question, it does remind me of, I was at a, a gig in Long Island a million years ago, and one of the other bands we played with, the guy who played uh, lead guitar and sang, was very good, and he was, uh, you know, late 40s at the time, and he would always showed up, like, dressed full peacocking, like in a, a faux fur coat, not a real fur coat but like you know just totally dressed up like a rock star and he he was a lot of fun and I was just drunk one night and asked him I was like so like you know what why do you do this like you're great I like watching your band play I like playing the same gigs with you but you know what what drives you to still do this in your late 40s and he's like a lot of my friends spend 50 plus grand a year playing golf and I spend a couple of grand a year on my one night a month out to make sure I have the right equipment, make sure the gigs go smoothly, play the music I want to play. And then I go home and, you know, on Monday I go to work and turn into an adult again. And I loved that so much. I loved every word out of that guy's mouth when he was explaining why, because that's essentially what a lot of these other things are. The golf club, the tennis club, you know, somebody in their late 40s just starting to play golf is not – realistically going to be the world's next golf pro, but that doesn't stop them from doing it. They still love doing it. They get enjoyment out of it and they pay a lot of money to do it. So I think someday it's going to swing around where everybody's hobbies, everybody's hobbies, as long as they don't hurt somebody else, or if it's like MMA where you're all in it together and it's totally cool because, you know, you know, that's what you're in it for. I think a lot of these hobbies are going to start to be just a lot more accepted and And mainstream, and I I think people are going to be a little less snooty about stuff like this. But up until that point, yeah, in order to have something like that, you would either have to already own a building and be willing to take a loss on that corner of the building where you keep this club or you'd have to have somebody fund it. Or you would end up doing what a lot of other barcade-style places do and realize that you make all of your money on the booze and on the food and you just end up losing a ton of money on arcade machines and video game setups So you'll eventually just turn into a bar restaurant, which is sad, but it's unfortunately the truth. So I'll quit rambling on about this, but this is an idea that I'm very obviously passionate about because as much as I love that setup so much, it's a lot of work. I'm constantly using it as tools and not, not something I could sit down and enjoy very often. So for me personally, if I could turn this into a lab or donate all my stuff to a local place and have them turn it into an interactive club slash lab. I would much rather jump in a car, head over, and then go walk into a room where everything's already set up, not torn apart because some idiot wants to do some crazy experiment where you put two CRTs together to compare a signal. But on the flip side, if I wanted to do those experiments, it would be cool to have a lab to do it. So if you're within driving distance of me and you're willing to uh, you're willing to fund something big and crazy like that, let me know. I could. Uh, we'll talk about donating quite a lot of stuff to make that happen. But yeah, so good ideas. Sorry for rambling about just pipe dream stuff that's probably useless. And, uh, you know, hopefully I'll, I'll sharpen up for the next questions. Next up, the dressing gown wants to know why I say to never, ever, ever use Y cables to split video signals or sync signals in analog consoles. And they said it might help to explain it like I'm five. Uh, So I am not talking down to anybody listening, but I do want to break this down super simple. And experts, roll your eyes if you really want. That's fine. Make fun of me. But I did explain it in a more technical term a bunch of times over the years. So When you complete a circuit in a video signal, so let's just use a a console, right? So you plug your Super Nintendo into your TV. What you're doing when you plug that yellow cable into that yellow composite video jack on your TV is completing a full circuit, and the termination at the end of that circuit is 75 ohms. So that's how much impedance, that's how much draw is being pulled from the console, and that's when it's being terminated at the display. So when you split that signal, you use just a Y cable, which is as simple, I mean, just imagine the the letter Y, right? You have one signal coming out of the console that's split into two. Let's say you go into a capture card and a TV. That will drop the brightness, but the reason it drops the brightness is because it's putting twice the termination on it, twice the load. So it's taxing that video chip twice as hard every moment that that thing's powered on. And I have personally blown out a Super Nintendo doing exactly this. Now, the reason why you wouldn't see this happening when you use a Y cable with a sync signal is because as long as your display still gets the information of where all of the info on screen is synchronized to, it'll still work. But if you were looking at it on an oscilloscope, it would actually drop the voltage, but it is doing the same exact thing. It is putting twice the load on that video chip that's generating the sync signal. Now, there are some circuits that are very specifically designed to compensate for this, and it's totally safe. The most common one that you would run into is if you got a PVM or a BVM that has inputs and outputs, and you just see a whole bunch of BNC connectors on the back, and you're supposed to put 75-ohm termination connectors on the outputs. And if you don't, you could remove those terminators put wires from one monitor to another and then terminate on that one. And that's how you're able to link most of these monitors together because it passes the signal through without the termination. But that's never something that I've seen in a consumer grade TV. I've seen the ones that have composite video out, but that buffers it. That's a totally different thing. So hopefully... That's just a very oversimplified way of saying why you never, ever, ever want to use Y-cables for video because it pulls twice of the... It's trying to pull twice the signal out, which at, at best will make it darker, but at worst, you'll actually blow that chip out of your console, and who knows what else around that chip might fry as well. So never good to do that. However, with audio signals... It is completely different. You may introduce some interference and in noise. You uh, may have it a little bit quieter, but it will not blow anything out. And while I don't think I've ever done a video specifically on this, I'm going to leave a video to a link to the video that I did with Steve from HD Retrovision, proving without a shadow of a doubt why it's totally safe to use Y cables in all audio signals, with the only negative effects being maybe there's some hum or interference, but not always. Sometimes it's totally fine. So uh, hopefully all of that stuff made sense. But if not, just ask where it is that you're fuzzy on this. And I'll try to concentrate on that point because it's not just you. A, A lot of people listening are probably like, I still don't get it. Bob sucks at explaining this stuff. That's fine. I'll keep trying. Just tell me what's the confusing part. Jeff L is looking to manually wire a SCART receptacle onto a GBS control box, so you could essentially just get SCART input to that. And they can't figure out the orientation of the SCART diagram that I have up on one of the retro RGB pages. So by far the best way to test this would be with a multimeter or maybe by plugging some connections directly in. Um, And what I mean by that is it's really hard to tell whenever you're looking at any SCART diagram. Are you looking at the back or the front of the connector? How is it oriented? And what's with the inputs and outputs? Audio in and RGB in and out and stuff like that. Or not, uh, RGB I believe is the same, but sync has an input and an output and audio has an input and an output. So what I would really suggest is just simply going through and double-checking everything. So um, go and open up the SCART head of a cable that you have and use a multimeter. And I, when I say a multimeter, and you know the $8 one I have listed on the Amazon store, I think it's 15 now because of inflation, but whatever, not expensive pieces of equipment. And just find the audio line, and then use the multimeter to figure out which pin it's coming when you're wiring it up. Because there's the ones that the surface mount pins, not the through-hole mount pins that go down, there's the cable mount that goes back. It just, it gets confusing. So I would just do it that way. The only other thing I would suggest is maybe try to look into getting a sync stripper style device that has SCART input and VGA style output, D-sub. This is the SCART cleaner. These should be available for sale, any day now. I'm not, I actually forgot why there was a delay on this. But this is the perfect device for something like that because you, this just does everything that you would need. Now, there's plenty of other devices out there that could do it. Um, I would just look for anything that takes SCART input and has something like a D-sub VGA style out. And you could, I believe you could use the ones that change it to RGBHV or just keep it in RGBS. That's certainly a, an advantage of using GBS control. Because going through that isn't just about feeding it an RGBS signal. I think that one uh, performed a lot better with a sync stripper. So I, I would kind of look into those. So I, I wanted to answer your question for anybody that's looking to wire their own SCART connector. You could study the diagrams, but it's always best to just check with a multimeter because you can't. It's a lot harder to mess that up because, you know, you could hear the beep. You could see where the signals go. But for GBS control, you might actually just want to buy a pre-existing box that accepts a SCART input with any sync and then converts that to clean sync at a higher voltage. So basically any sync stripping RGB to VGA connector. And I don't think RGBHV or RGBS would matter in the context of the GBS control. Mr. Morrow has a question about how I wire my Extron Crosspoint to my RetroTink 4K prototype because they're going to end up doing pretty much the same thing when that is released. And I have two answers. First, it's a very basic BNC to VGA cable. You don't need anything special. The VGA input could handle TTL level and seventy-five ohm sync, so there's nothing to worry about. But if you're running composite and S video at the same time, that's where things get a little bit weird. So I'll walk you through it. But it is as simple as I just said it. It's only um, well, here. Let me just walk you through it. So in my Extron crosspoint, anything that is YPBPR component video is routed through the red, green, and blue inputs on that port. Anything that's RGBs is obviously run through RGB and then sync and VGA signals, which I think I only have Dreamcast at the moment, is run RGB-HV. So instead of C-sync, that's the horizontal and then vertical sync. For S-video, I believe, I, please don't quote me on this one because uh, what I'm about to say is right, but the pins might not be right. But I'm pretty sure... Uh, Chroma is on green and luminance is on blue. And that way you could run those pins right through the VGA connector as if it were a red or, or a green or blue signal. However, composite video is also going to be on the same line as Chroma. So here's where you might run into a tiny bit of a hiccup, which is super easy to fix, by the way, but let me just walk you through it. So from my cross point, what I have going into it I have things like my VCR, my Philips CDI, and whenever it has not component and not RGB, I will take all of the signals. So my Betamax player, that's easy. That only has uh, composite video out. But for the rest, I'll put Chroma and Luma through the two corresponding pins that in an input, same ones that Mike specified on the RetroTink 4K, but I will also use that last remaining color, red or whatever it is, for composite video. But that means that on my cross point, and I do this just to save the number of inputs because I have a limited number of inputs on this one. Um, so that means on my cross point, though, uh, composite video won't run through the correct pin for the VGA connector on the RetroTink 4K. Now, on your setup, if you have enough inputs, you could just only use S-Video, only use composite, or use your VHS player's composite on input one and S-Video on input two. If you have enough inputs to satisfy all of that, it's not an issue. You could totally run it through one cable. But how I got around doing this is... Just simply two outputs. Output number eight is the R- the BNC to VGA cable going to the Tink 4K. And output number seven is just composite video going into the green jack in the back of the, the Tink 4K. Uh, hopefully I'm explaining this right. I will definitely show this in a video at some point. So that way, all of the connections come out of the back. So uh, component video, uh, RGBS, RGBHV, VGA, an S video all run through the VGA input, and then composite video just runs through green. So I just have two video cables and an audio cable coming out the back whenever it's in the setup behind me here. And that's it. So you don't have to worry about anything. At that point, all you would have to do is select the input from the menu. And I'm pretty sure you could even route audio to video inputs on that. So it should be pretty easy to, to do exactly what I just described. I know that was a, like a three-minute description that might have just made it way more confusing. But hopefully, if I just show a video of this at some point, um, and I'm going to do a lot of videos on the tank 4K when the time is right. I think a launch video is, uh, I think, Unlike my other launch videos, I think this launch video is going to have to be short, definitely 10-ish minutes or less, just to explain to people why you would even want the RetroTink 4K. And then I just want to do individual videos on stuff like this. Hey, do you have an Xtron CrossPoint with every signal in it and you want to hook this up? Here's the options. Exactly what I just described. Hey, do you want to connect your Nintendo Switch to this thing and do some crazy stuff? Here's everything that you could do. So... You know, anything that you all want to see or know about it, please let me know. I'll compile a list and and see what I could demonstrate. But basically, the one thing you want to take away from this is what you're looking to do is going to be very, very easy. You just have to plan ahead. Uh, it's not, and not even on cost. You just have to plan your ports and which cable to plug what into. But still cheap cables. So you don't need any converters or anything to do what you're looking to do. Tony Escobar recently got an awesome 8-inch Trinitron CRT for his birthday, a Sony KV-8AD12. That's a very cool gift. That is really neat. Uh, It only has composite video, so they plugged in their SNES Junior with Voltar's RGB mod, and it didn't work. When they plugged it back into their PVM-14L5, it worked, but there was no red coming out of it. So what is most likely happening is something shook loose in shipping, and you're shorting out pins. So I would strongly recommend not using that at all. Making sure to even unplug the power from the wall right now and send that back to your modder and have them double check it. This stuff does happen. In fact, that's why you see people use glue to tack wires down. I want to be very clear about that. If you see glue on solder joints, then whoever did that has no clue what they're doing if you have glue holding wires down, tacked onto a part of the motherboard where there are no connections, that very often isn't necessary, but that's why some people choose to do that. Because if you have the best mod on the planet, but somebody punts it down the side of a building into their UPS truck or whatever, not picking on UPS, they all have their occasional bad drivers, um, then something like this could happen. But if you have an RGB modded SNES Jr., all of the connections will will work. So if you have an RGB and S video modded, those will work and composite video. If you only did RGB, composite video will still work. That will not take away from it. And there are very few mods for the SNES that you will end up losing composite video. And those mods are only for motherboard revisions that have terrible jail bars. And there's a few but that would, you know, that's not the case of the the SNES Mini, SNES Junior, Super Famicom Junior. There's a bunch of names for them, but it's all the same smaller SNES. So you should be able to do this no problem. Um, and if it doesn't work now, that means something shorted... Uh, a wire came loose and shorted and probably affected one of the chips. So if that's the case, um, hopefully your monitor would be able to fix that if not contact me and I'm sure we could figure something out for you but awesome gift, very cool little monitor and a composite video is going to look great on it because small tubes so you're still jamming all of those lines in one spot so it's it's kind of like a more line dense screen to look at. So I bet your composite's going to look really cool on that. Um, so yeah, let us know about your SNES, but hopefully that'll just be a very easy fix. Steve Walls just wanted to give everybody a heads up and say that Wagner Online in Australia do some pretty good composite component S video switches with or without auto switching. They use one of the component ones as a combo RGBS S video switch, as long as one of the outputs is live at a given time. They're not sure if they're rebrands, as they're, if they weren't able to find the exact same thing via any of the other usual sources, but they do ship internationally. The AVS or YUV100 might be worth a look. So I've never tested those before, but I definitely want to leave a link and pass the suggestion over. Um, you know, with all respect, Steve, please keep these suggestions coming. But unless I stick something out in an oscilloscope and do an MD Fourier test, I'm, I'm definitely not going to say for sure that it's going to be a good and safe switch. However, if you're using composite, component, and S video, there's basically no safety issues whatsoever. It would only be a powered switch with RGBS that you might have to worry about sync issues. So I would say, as long as anything other than RGBS, um, I would completely feel comfortable recommending to at least try it and see how it works. But whenever sync is involved in a switch, uh, you want to make sure that it does something like pass the signal through and not convert it to TTL like the Xtron cross crosspoints do. Or if they do, you just need to be very aware of that and have the correct conversion cable that just has a resistor in it to step the voltage down. So I'll leave a link to the website that you had shared. Please keep the suggestions coming. Don't think I'm poo-pooing your suggestion here. I just always want to be crystal clear when it comes to safety issues with your consoles and equipment. But for everything except RGBS, I, I can't imagine there would ever be a safety issue unless you throw it in a bathtub after plugging your console in or something. So thanks for the suggestion. Double H has some very cool questions, and there are some incredibly complicated answers to this, but I'm going to run through the simple version. But please... Let me know where you want me to go back and clarify next week. And some of this stuff's even over my head, but let me just jump into it. So, Double H recently found the exact stereo receiver they had in their bedroom growing up. And they were even able to get the big tower speakers that their parents used to have. And they hooked it up to a 5-disc CD player, put in some 90s classic and were instantly transported back to their bedroom in high school. The sound was amazing, and they could even tell that the songs were coming from their high school setup and not their MP3 player or car stereo that they have nowadays, which is surprising because they never understood what audio files talked about. And then the receiver started to not sound so great. Missing bass, missing treble, uh, sound going in and out. So they're assuming that it probably needs a recap, do I foresee any other common failed parts of this era in audio equipment? Uh, And for the record, it's a Pioneer VSX-403. So yeah, the power supply is going to be something you're going to want to look at, the internal power supply. And when it comes to audio equipment, that could make a massive, massive difference in sound. I remember the Oppo players that I was getting a while back, the BDP-93, and then they had the Audio File Edition that was over a grand. People were actually taking the power supplies out of those and putting really expensive ones in and putting up their audio clips and getting slightly better audio. So this is a a very crazy rabbit hole to go down. Um, But my suggestion is going to be the exact same as any classic electronics. Open it up. Grab like some magnifying glasses or those magnifying glass hood things, a really bright flashlight, and go in there and just inspect the motherboard. Did any of the capacitors leak out and start to corrode the board? Um, Replace all of the caps, and when you take them out, look underneath them because jose has post a t- posted a ton of pics online of boards that people had sent them for a recap and kind of like hey i know it probably doesn't need it but would you just do it for peace of mind and he opens it up and he's like looks fine but hey it's smart you could preemptively recap it and then as he's taking the capacitors off the caps had just started leaking So you didn't actually see it across the whole motherboard. You would only see it right underneath the cap. And if that person who thought, "Eh, maybe I'll just do it to be safe, thought the opposite and was like, I'll leave it for a couple more years. It could have started corroding their motherboard out. So I would change all the caps. I would make sure you use audio grade capacitors, not cheap ones. Uh, And then I would just do a visual inspection of anything else, you know, clean it out with all the proper ways you would clean electronics um, and just be patient and careful and, hopefully replacing the caps would fix everything that you need. The only other tip is the capacitance has to be exactly the same. So if it's a you know, a 220 microfarad capacitor, you have to replace it with that exact same 220 microfarad. But as with anything else, if it's a 220, 220 UF, it's 12 volt, you could replace it with 12 16, 20, a million volts, it doesn't matter. The size of the cap will start to matter, but same capacitance equal to or greater than voltage to replace them. Um, So that would basically be it. And then if you do a full recap and you clean it and it's still cutting out, check the connections, look for uh, broken traces. But at that point, you're really gonna wanna make a decision. You know, you probably would have, I hate to use the word wasted, but at that point you might've wasted a weekend, a full weekend doing a cap list, ordering them, then waiting for the caps to come in another, another day and a following weekend, replacing them. But that's really a minimal investment when it comes to your audio setup. And when you start to dip your toe into audiophile land, like a minimal, minimal cost and minimal time investment. So I would think that that was kind of a worthy test to go from there. And who knows, maybe you'll do that and it'll be perfect and you'll be happy. But Maybe you're going to want to then just look into higher end equipment and see what to do from there. Now, here's where it starts to get complicated. They were also wondering if they wanted to make a brand new receiver sound like their old one. Could they even do that? Could you use a tone generator and maybe get an equalizer and try to make it sound exactly like it? Is this a thing? So it is a thing. There are speaker manufacturers out there that you're able to do, and this is starting to get into the high end world, but if you really loved the sound of a classic speaker, you could press a button on an app and your speaker setup could kind of mimic that. But what I really, I think the more important question right now, we could come back and revisit this because this is some deep audiophile stuff. And I should have an interview coming up soon with the perfect person to ask these questions to. But what is your goal? Is your goal to recreate the sound that you had in high school because that brings you back. That That is a combination of nostalgia with how your ears have always heard those sounds. Same way with people want to use specific color palettes on the NES because that's the way their TV looked. Even if it's not, quote unquote, the right color palette, that's how their eyes saw it when they were a kid. So that's how they want to see it now. That's totally cool. But if you're chasing analog audio sound, that's completely different and i talked uh i talked a few times in interviews about this so i'm going to make it short but it is my very strong opinion probably starting to get more towards the factual side of things that if you took an album that was created all analog. And the band or the audio engineers or both were were having cassette mixes every night. So they, they play the songs through onto the cassette. They, you know, They throw the band the cassettes. They throw them into their car, into their home stereos, into their headphones. And that's what they're mixing and mastering these things on. Unless those songs were very well remastered for modern digital, they're going to sound much different. And there was a couple of bands, uh, Halloween, Queensryche, there was a a couple of, uh, oh, Wu-Tang. There was a bunch of stuff that I listened to digitally on a CD, not a remastered edition or maybe there was no remastered available, but I listened to it on this setup, which is very good. I even put it through a very, not a high-end multi-thousand dollar CD player, but a good CD player with good analog pre-outs. And the CD sounded very good. However, when I threw the cassette in, instruments started to come out. I had been listening to these songs my whole life. Even stuff that I bought on CD as a kid that I'd never heard the song sound this good before. You could hear instruments you couldn't hear. And it's not that analog was better. Technically, digital is going to be the best as long as you use high bit rates and everything. But it was that they were mixing and mastering on analog with that tape noise. So that's what they turned all the knobs to do so that that's the sound that they wanted and it was very obvious after doing a lot of these experiments and some stuff like Michael Jackson's Thriller now now you're at preference the remastered for iTunes editions sounded amazing way better than I would have expected and some people even preferred it over the analog however if you grew up listening to Thriller on vinyl you'd probably prefer that because you hear that needle on the record sound so that was a kind of a longer way of saying you need to decide what your end goal is. Is your end goal to mimic your exact setup that you or your parents had in high school or is it to get a good analog setup so that you could recreate the way those sounds are made? And one of the things it's a project's on hold unfortunately, but one of the things I really wanted to look into is cheap ways of running digital through analog preamps. In the high-end audio world, this has always existed. You could drop a couple of grand right now and solve this problem, and that CD that I was talking about could potentially sound identical to the cassette, but clearer for a lot of money. And I want to try to find a way to do it that's not going to be cheap, but like 200 bucks, not $2,000. And I have a couple of ideas on how we could pull that off. And I have some friends that are smart enough to do it, but we got to work on other stuff first. And if I'm missing something, let me know. But with all respect, please don't drop links to those Amazon amps that have the tubes in them. That is... The same concept, but not the same execution. That's a bunch of cheap equipment glued together in a box with a tube sticking out the top to make you feel retro. That's not going about it. You know, we're going about this from like an MD Fourier point of view and then sticking an audio file grade tube on that. But once again, I'm just trying to make sure that if this product ever exists, even if it's open source, it's avail- or it's available to do in a way that's affordable for people that care, not just for people that have thousands of dollars to spend, which I wish I did. <laughs> I'm not putting I'm not putting any of that stuff down. If you work your butt off and you end up with a bunch of money and that's how you want to spend it, hell yeah, that you're going to you're going to really love it, but Not all of us can afford that. So I want to be Mr. $200 solution guy. So yeah, let me know if you want me to point anything else into it uh, or clarify anything else. And uh, I guess I talked way too long about this, but this is a fun topic for me. So, you know, as always skip around uh, if you get bored of my rambling. Next up, old kid wanted to know if I ever found a free program that easily splits video files without re-encoding. So somebody in the YouTube comments suggested that I try using virtual dub, and then just going to video and direct stream copy, and then using a a cut that way. And I did try it, but it didn't work with multiple files that I tried. It said it wasn't the right file type for it. So maybe if it's a certain type of compression, maybe it's a, a codec thing, I don't really know. But if you have to do that, VirtualDub is free. It's kind of a confusing piece of software. If you you know, There's a learning curve to it, but it is incredibly helpful once you start to learn how to use it. So I would absolutely give that a try first, but no, I've had zero time to follow up on this. And in fact, the program that you suggested, Bandicut Video Converter, looked perfect. I just have had zero time to actually take a look. So I'll leave a link to that if anybody's interested. Uh, I do appreciate the suggestions. And if anybody has free software that they would like me to try i would i'd like to push that first because i am i am very much of the mindset of making sure to pay people for really good work and maybe this is a problem that's just really hard to solve so it's worth every penny to buy that however there are so many situations where people will step into something and need to use it once and if that's the case. I just, I feel bad telling people to go buy a piece of software if you have one scenario in which you need to use it. Or what if that software that you bought works perfect for 99.9% of stuff and you want to just try an alternative for the weird stuff. So keep the suggestions coming. No re-encoding is the only mandatory thing because I want to be able to take footage that I shot and then just cut it to whatever it is you know uh, cut a chunk out of it put two together if it's the same type of file like if i shot two files in my iphone or something like that i want to be able to cut or or splice without re-encoding and re-recompressing i want to keep it as is so any suggestions please let me know but i'll leave a link to the one that old kid suggested Charles Madeira recently got an awesome Ikigami monitor. However, they're getting what they describe as some bendy video flagging on most of their consoles. And I believe if it's what I'm thinking of, if you're looking at the screen in like the top left corner, the video seems to like curl over to one side. And if that's the case, then it's sync issues, very similar to what you would find on A-series BVMs. And that's where you would really need some sync regeneration issues uh, fixed up. So now there are multiple ways to go about doing this and there is no one surefire way to fix it because the fix might be different per console. Yeah, it's going to be that annoying. So take a deep breath here and prepare yourself. First, is that monitor or does that monitor have composite S video inputs? If so, I would give those a try just to see what happens. Um, Now, you mentioned that this all happens when you're running the analog DAC through it. So that's easy. That way you could go from the DAC to something like an Xtron RGB interface and then output from that to the Ikigami and give that a try. There are many different models. You just want to search for Xtron RGB interface. I'll leave a link. Um, But the 580... Uh, You don't need the 201 and the 203. Those are more expensive, and they do centering as well, which you probably don't need. You're just looking for their RGB interfaces. And uh, the only trick is I would try to find one with a power supply or find one that just uses a standard power cable with the internal power supply. Because I did buy one for – I bought a couple for like 8 bucks, But then after you go buy the power supply, buy the connectors that you need, wire everything up – You know, pay for shipping on all that. You're still talking about the same prices if you just bought one with a power supply. But the goal would be, and I would start with the analog DAC just because it's going to be easier. Use a VGA cable to go from the DAC to the Xtron RGB interface. Then from there, you would use BNC cables to go into your monitor. And then you want to toggle the different options. Uh, The serration pulses, basically just mess with the whatever interface that you have, toggle the switches and see if that fixes it. But unfortunately, what might fix it for one console might not for another. As you found with your N64, um, the same HD retrovision cables work perfect with your SNES, but not with N64 in 480i mode. One thing that you could try with your N64 is if it's N64 digital modded, you could try to do direct output on that one and then just use an HDMI to component or HDMI to VGA converter, go through the Xtron box and then see if that works. But this is going to be a complicated fix and you might have to do different things for different consoles, or maybe you'll get lucky and everything will just kind of work. But I would start by buying one of those cheap interfaces because um, it's just going to be the least investment to start with. So I'll leave a link to Extron RGB stuff. But Charles, this is unfortunately one of the downsides of getting pro equipment. And it's like buying a Lamborghini, right? You buy a Honda and you basically never do anything to it. Change your oil, brakes and tires, and if nothing, nothing fails on it, you just drive it forever. Whereas you buy a Lamborghini that you add two zeros to the price at the end of it, you got to rebuild the motor every 20,000 miles. There's constant maintenance. It's always like that. The higher end piece of machinery that you're using, the more stuff is going to go along with it. And it, it's just kind of one of those things, which is, you know, not to plug my friend here, but this is kind of one of the reasons why If you're in a scenario like this, many people might choose the RetroTank 4K over a high-end RGB monitor because there's just less to deal with. You just plug it in and load up your CRT filters. You spend a day figuring out what's your favorite uh, profiles. You save those, and now that's it. You're done, whereas you might... Every time you fire up this awesome monitor that was definitely worth picking up, but every time you plug something in, you might end up having to plug it through a different chain to get it working properly. So keep feeding me info. Let's see if we could find a permanent solution for you. Let's see if we could do something like run it all through one set of switches into some kind of sync cleaner into the monitor. Let's try to figure this out, but uh, I, I definitely would would budget some extra time for this one. Next up is a question from Hovan, and please let me know if I got your name right. I always try to get them right, but I'm just terrible at pronunciations. But anyway, they're preparing a living room space to set up several CRTs, and they came across the same type of basic wire shelving units that I had showed in my previous videos, but they also saw versions that were a little more expensive that had supposed ESD protection, electrostatic discharge. Is it safe to go with the cheaper option? Um, or should they spend the extra money? So, here's opinions and guesses. I, I really don't know if there's a big difference, but my guess is that if you ran a wire around the edge of the non ESD version and put it into your grounding in your wall, it would be basically the same thing. However, if it's not much more expensive, so if it's like 85 versus 100. I would probably buy it for peace of mind, even though it might be a waste of money because this is going to be the root of your setup. Because don't forget, I mean, you know, replacing a console or a CRT takes minutes. Imagine if you had to replace these wire racks. And also when you're doing wire rack setups, I would take the time to cut pieces of wood to fit over the top of that wire shelf perfectly so you can go to big stores like home depot and they should be able to cut it and then you go home with a dremel or a small cutter yourself and then you kind of loop around the corners so it could fit inside that shelf to help evenly distribute the weight and that was a massive difference when i put legs on the d32 and then put it on the wire rolling rack and it just it distributed the weight Perfectly across. It. Whereas before, you know, if you have just your legs on those wires, the wire starts to bend a little bit. And even though the ones that you showed are rated at 800 pounds, uh, I, I don't know, I would feel much better with a piece of wood on it there. So maybe even adding the wood completely, you know, it, it just defeats the purpose of ESD shelves. Or maybe it's just basic stuff like they're coated in something where if you have a thick sweater on in the winter and you walk across the carpet and you touch it, it won't spark. Who knows? But If it's in your budget, I would spend a little bit more just for the stupid peace of mind, knowing that you might have wasted your money, but isn't it nice to know... You know, you're, the root of your setup is a little bit more protected, possibly. Uh, but I would definitely do the wood thing. You know, if you had to choose, I would choose making wood shelves for all of the heavy stuff. Um, and even heavy stuff like like I have over there. I have loaded up a Philips CDI, a VCR, a Laserdisc player, and a Betamax player. So there's like 200 pounds sitting on that shelf. And I have a piece of wood going across just to make sure that it's distributed properly. Next question, they want to display HD consoles on an XBR790 using the RetroTINK 5X's ability to output 540p. What resolutions should the consoles be set to to output to look the best in that setting? 1080p is exactly two times that, so is it simple as setting the consoles to 1080p and let the Tink have it to 540p? So the Tink 5X, uh, I don't believe that it, I don't think that'll take 1080p input. I think what you're doing here, so just to back up for a second, what Huban's looking to do is take, I believe the, you'd have to put firmware version one on the tank, which you could always switch firmware versions back and forth. It's never locked. Uh, But that has the ability to output 540p. So if you have an XBR CRT or HD CRT, you would run it at its native resolution Of 540p or 1080i. It's just like how 240p and 480i are the same refresh rate, the same frequency, 15 kilohertz. Uh, 540p and 1080i are the same kilohertz that it runs at. So, you know, that the goal for that is for consoles like. 240p, 480i, and 480p to be output in 540p. The Tank 5X, I don't think, has the ability to downscale 720 and 1080 consoles to that. So what you would probably do for the original Xbox, that's super easy. Leave that in 480p and let the Tank output 540p. But for anything that is actually 720 and 1080 outputting, you're going to want to try to set that to 480p or you would have to use some kind of other downscaler first to get it down. But I'm pretty sure most can. Like, you could set the switch to 480p. There's a lot of consoles that you could do that. So um, I would just kind of plan your entire setup around this, but have your focus be on 480p and below and anything over that, kind of wait till after and see if that's still important to you, or just go directly into the XBR if it can handle the 720p signal. It won't be able to handle 1080p, but I just I don't know of any devices out there that would only output 1080p. I think many would at least have a 720 option. So, uh, yeah, give those a try and see what you think. And you know, let us know when you're done with your living room setup. Even if you just post one quick picture here, that sounds like you're going to be working on something pretty fun. Next up, JP Bruneo. Did I get that right? I'm sorry, JP. Uh, But they need to find a device that'll let them connect their RF signal consoles to a CRT via Composite. Their three big CRTs are really heavy and placed in cabinets that makes it hard to access the RF connector on the back, so they want to be able to just convert those to composite so they could use the front composite jacks, which is much easier. They're aware that they could use a VCR to achieve this, but they're looking for a more compact solution. On the web, they see there are different RF modulators and demodulators, so which one would I recommend? Well, I honestly would recommend a VCR, and it's just because you could get them so cheap, if it stops working, you know, you could throw it in a bin for parts and then buy another one for super cheap. Uh, but if you really are looking for a more compact solution, you could try ones from Extron. Uh, and you could also try a Sony one that was meant for, <laughs> <coughs> Ooh, excuse me, this one's got some dust on it <laughs> for, uh, for PVMS. I'll leave the model to bo- uh, a number for both of these, and I'll, I'll see if there's any on eBay I could link to, but they essentially just have RF in and video and audio out. The Sony one, you would just need a one single R- BNC to RCA adapter. Those are super cheap. Actually, both of these, you would need that, but that's just the, the most basic adapter on here. Uh, I've heard... I've heard that the Extron ones have issues, and this does not have a standard power supply. So if you buy the AVT one hundred, you would have to make your own PSU or buy one with it. Uh, but either way, these should do what you're looking to do, and they're much smaller. The Extron one is by far the smallest. The Sony one is smaller this way, but if you turn it sideways, it's not much smaller than a VCR would be. So. I I would use a VCR, but if you're really looking for a compact solution, uh, maybe try the Extron smaller box. Uh, And if anybody has other solutions out there for ones that would work that are even smaller, please let me know. Uh, And I have heard weird things about the Extron one, but I've never used it. But if you could find it cheap, maybe it's worthwhile. But apparently one of these had a sticker on it or something. Now my hands are all covered in goo, so I'll be back. Oliver Clare said they just watched the weekly roundup video and they're very excited to upgrade to a RetroTink 4K when it gets released. Not so excited as a Honda owner, but they'll let that go. <laughs> Hopefully the analogy landed okay. They currently run uh, they currently own the RetroTink 5X and the GBS control which they've been using as a dedicated upscaler and dedicated downscaler respectively. The idea being that any console connect couldn't connect to any TV in the room. Their thinking is that when they upgrade to the Tink 4K, they might keep the 5X and use that as the dedicated downstaler. Um, So I think that's awesome. You know, Oliver has a little blurb here. Sincerely apologize if the idea of relegating the 5X to a niche use like downscaling comes across as entitled or bratty. But no, that's that's an awesome solution. I mean, that's I, I've heard of a couple of people buying two. One is an upscaler and one is a downscaler. So And it's still doing that is cheaper than buying a lot of the other downscaling devices that were out there. So no, that's awesome. Um, their logic is in the same way that the 5X is known as more of a user-friendly plug and play alternative to the OSSC and Framecer as an upscaler, it might also require less manual tweaking or optimization than the GBS control to operate as a dedicated downscaler. Uh yeah, and not only that, but it also has pass through options now for 240 and 480. There's uh, there's a lot of things that you could do with it. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, So they'd be using the 4K to upscale consoles to their modern flat panel and the 5X to downscale even more stuff like the PS4 to their CRT that only accepts 480i or 240p 15 kHz signals. But they have a few concerns. They vaguely recall reading about a firmware update that potentially removed the downscaling feature on the 5X. Yeah, all of the the 2.0 firmwares don't have it. So depending on your use case, you'd either want to leave it on the last one version one firmware, so the 1.xx, whatever is the highest, or the newest ones can definitely do it as well. And it's really just a matter of what your use case is. If you want to switch between 480i pass-through and uh, conversion to 240p, all that stuff, you're going to need to constantly be messing with it, but you could totally just do that on the latest firmware. Or if you just want to always leave it to down downscale to 240p, you might want to just leave it on the original, but that's a couple of minutes of experimenting and that's going to be different for everybody else. Uh, Next, they remember the 5X supports downscaling from 480p to 240, but they don't know if it ever supported downscaling from 720. Yes, absolutely. However, it's designed for content that should be, or, or that would fit in a retro setup. So you can take a modern like Call of Duty style game and set it to 720p and downscale it but you're going to lose a lot of detail. However, when you do something like take Virtual Racing in 720p and you put it down to uh to 480p or 480i or 240p, that actually looks great. Same thing with Daytona and you know, so if your console is locked to 720p but its content that is scaled up like that anyway, then it would be totally fine. Things like Axiom Verge, you know, any of the—not um, that you would ever use this for your setup—but the the classic consoles, the HDMI out 720p outputting one, using it to downscale, you're not losing any info because the stuff was scaled up anyway. So yeah, totally would work. Um, and lastly, the RetroTink 4K seems to have a multitude of ports, leading them to wonder if it would serve well as an all-in-one combined upscaler downscaler device. Um, so I, I don't know yet. I haven't used it at all to downscale. And my gut is telling me that your idea of two dedicated devices is going to be by far the best answer for you. Now, for everybody else, um, if you haven't been following these Q&As, Oliver has a very badass setup built from scratch to accommodate all of this stuff. So Oliver's setup, no doubt, two dedicated devices are going to be the, the better way to go about doing this. However, uh, for many other people, you might be able to route things properly. And you might even be able to do HDMI in to downscale and then use a DAC. So what we'd really need is an HDMI matrix switch with at least four outputs, and that way we could route things through digital to analog converters on the output side. Uh, Or I guess we could piece it together with an HDMI switch and a bunch of splitters, but I would love to see a matrix switch handle all of this stuff. So anybody out there have good, cheap HDMI matrix switches with at least four outputs? Eight in, four out, I think would be perfect. anything more 12 in five or six out that would be great too but anything like that that's affordable i would really love to hear about because you'd be able to do loopbacks and there's a lot of reasons why getting a matrix switch with the retro tank 4k would be a good idea to the point where i did annoy the hell out of mike thinking maybe we could make one but that's that's just would delay things. And there's a, you're also going to have to compete with the, the HDMI clone market, which is massive. Uh, I mean, just imagine Bitfunk's scaled to a, a global level with all products. There's no way, you know, for Mike to make one would be three times the price of something you can get on Amazon. But we just have to find the right one. So if we could all kind of... Um, if we could all kind of just put our heads together and try to find a cheap HDMI matrix switch. And if not, I could try to have one made. I could try to work with one of the many amazing people that I work with, and we could build one from scratch and try to make it in low quantities. But it'd be way cooler if we could just find one affordable. I know where you can get plenty for thousands of dollars, but that's not that's not going to be a good solution for people. So yeah, that's, um, you know, in the last thoughts, should you sell the GBS control? My opinion on this is no, because I have a feeling that's going to be a tool in your toolbox that will come out eventually to the point where, you know, there's a lot of stuff I have that, uh, here's the best example. There's a bunch of stuff I have that I've used once or twice that I'll never use again, that I kind of know that I'll never use again. So I keep trying to get around to selling it, because even if I only get 50 bucks for it, you know, whatever, that's dinner and a beer or something, right? But, There's a lot of other things that I use once or twice a year, tops. And every time I use it, I'm like, I'm so glad I have this. I would much rather not get that 50 bucks and know that I have this thing here. And I'm pretty sure for your setup and a lot of the craziness that you do, keeping that GBS is going to be something that the one time you might ever use it in the future, you're going to go, shit, I'm really glad I kept this. Would have made my life so much harder if I didn't have this in a drawer somewhere. But that's just my opinion. If you want some beer money, or if you want to help out a friend and donate it to a friend who needs a good scaler, you could always just build another one. So just my opinions. But yeah, it's uh, all of that sounds very cool. And I'm, I'm looking forward to now testing some of the downscaling abilities on the Tink 4K. Well, that's it for this week. As a friendly reminder, if I'm rambling off about something that has no interest to you, please just remember that there's timestamps in the description. And while I do hope that a lot of people approach this as, hey, let me flip on this weekly Q&A while I commute to work, go jogging, whatever else, um, feel free to skip around. Because a lot of times I get really into the questions that are asked. And maybe the only two people on the planet that care about it is myself and the person who asked the question. And that's cool, too. I still love having these conversations. I just want to try to be respectful of everybody's time as well. That's one of the many reasons why I take the time to put the timestamps in and stuff like that. And on YouTube, it's super easy to skip around on the podcast services, maybe not so much, but at least the timestamps there and you could get a general idea so as always thank you to everybody who participates thank you to everybody who listens and puts up with the rambling and especially of course thank you to everybody who supports in any way possible because without you none of these things that i'm involved in would ever have been made possible so thank you all so much and i'll see you next week